0: So if you've got a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20? We're going to be looking at a parable. We're in a series on the parables, and it's kind of been an exciting time for me because these parables are crushing me as I hear the words of Jesus. The reason that we meet, the reason that we study the Word of God is because of what Jesus has done, and he has some stories that he tells, metaphorical stories that help us to understand what the kingdom of God is like, and they're challenging, and tonight's no different. You'll see when we get to the parable, but one of the things I thought about this week was just the dynamics of group projects. Do you remember these? I might do a show of hands here, but there's probably a group of us in this room that when we were in doing group projects, we were the ones that did all the work, and there's always a couple other people in the group. Yeah, I see you confessing, Toph, yeah, <laughs> that would just kind of like not do anything, right? And they'd show up like, oh, how can I help, like on the last day? And it's like, it's already done. I mean, I don't want to just be sexist or anything like that, but it's usually probably the women in the room that did the work and the men who waited till the last minute. It's like, oh, I can't believe that's done already. Thank you. But if you've ever had that experience, you know that it's infuriating and uh, you're very upset when you realize that even though there's some people that did all the work and another group of people that didn't do anything, that at the end of the day, you all get, what, the same grade and it pisses you off. (laughs) And I get it. I think I've been on both sides of that, but it's infuriating. The other thing I thought about, I helped a friend move today. I was the only one that showed up to help, but if there had been more people, because this has happened to me before, has it happened to you, where you work all day long moving, and then there's the folks that show up at the very end of the day. And they're like, oh man, how can I help? What can I grab? You know, and there's just like, a f- there's like two or three jackets that they bring in, and they're like, oh man, can't believe it's done already. And you're like, yeah, I've been sweating all day. And you know what happens at the end of that? Everybody gets beer and pizza, not just the people that were there all day, even the guy that showed up at the very end. And there's maybe nothing in life that is more upsetting when you do all the work and somebody else gets the same credit that you did. And so we're going to be looking at that question today in the context of the kingdom of God, and Jesus has some words about how that works in his kingdom. For those that show up late to the moving party, do they get beer and pizza? We'll see what Jesus has to say about it. It's going to be a challenging text, so we're going to look at that. Now before we read it together, I want to just stop real quick and say, remember the parables are allegorical stories, so they're not only or primarily talking about the thing that they're talking about. And so, what we're going to see is some economic distribution. There could be some principles about labor, even things that you might think could be related to politics, but primarily the parables are talking about the kingdom of God, not necessarily about politics or economic systems. So, if you're there, I just want to show you why, again, this is true. I want you to look, we're going to be looking at chapter 20, but I want you to look at the end of chapter 19, starting in verse 23. Jesus said this to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter what? The kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? That's an important line. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne. And so, why am I reading this? I want to show you that the context from which this parable springs forth is a context about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, this new world. And so it's important to understand that when we read it that it's not primarily talking about the distribution of funds or employee compensation, though that doesn't mean that we it's just not primarily what this parable is about. So let's read it, starting in verse 1, chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, he, that's the landowner, did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Challenging words, as always, from Jesus. And I want to just draw out these three main character groups in this parable. There's the landowner, who we should see as equivalent to God in this story. There's the first group hired, which in the immediate context with which Jesus was speaking, this would probably be the religious folks of the day. The Pharisees, who their whole life had worked hard to please God and do what He had ordered them to do. And the last group hired is probably the non-Jews, the Gentiles, or the sinners, the tax collectors, and whatnot. We see Jesus interacting with these different groups in these same ways in other parables. In fact, last week we talked about a parable that might sound kind of similar, which we have a master and a servant. What's important to understand here, in this parable, the people are equated to laborers, which is not the same as servants. Servant was a full-time employee of a particular master or landowner, so he had this job security. A laborer, which is a day laborer, he was somebody that each and every day had to go to the marketplace and wait for somebody to hire him. This might be like going down to the Home Home Depot and hiring someone to help you with a project for the day. So each and every day they had to go and wait to see if they'd get employment, that they might earn a day's wage, and a denarius was the typical day's wage And what we see, actually, is this was probably in harvest time, which is why the landowner was going to hire day laborers in addition maybe to his servants. And during harvest, it was very typical to have a 12-hour workday. And so what we'll see is sunset, which was when the day began. That's 6 a.m. That's when he goes out for the first time to hire. And then each and every successive time, he visits the marketplace until the last time, which is about 5 p.m., and the workday ends at 6 p.m. And then it was custom for, and in this case, he sends out sort of his manager, his foreman, it says, to settle up with the day laborers at the end of the day. This is a typical scenario in the ancient Near East at the time Jesus was around. So they understand it, but it's important to kind of see what's going going on here. Verse 1 and 2, For the kingdom of God is like a a master of a house who went out early in the morning at sunrise, 6 a.m., to hire day laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Verse 3. And going out the third hour, which would have been nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard also. And look, he doesn't give them an amount. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. And we should assume with each successive group, groups three, group four, and group five, he probably says the same thing because we don't have it recorded for us, so we should understand he did the same thing to the other group saying, I'll give to you what's fair. So it's only the first group that he has sort of a formal contract. You work for me today. I'll give you $1. Verse four, or excuse me, verse five. uh, So he went out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour. That's noon, three o'clock. And he did the same. Why, why, why is he doing so much hiring? What's going on? Why does he keep need, needing to go back? Well, we're not sure. Jesus doesn't tell us why he has to keep going back. And, and so, we don't really know. But we could hypothesize, and we'll do that in a second. So press pause on why in the world is he going back to the marketplace again and again to hire more? Verse 6, And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? they said to him, because no one has hired us. Now, what's going on? I don't think this is just some lame excuse. I don't think they're being sarcastic. I think they're sincere. They wanted to work, but they just haven't been hired. So the question is, if the landowner is analogous to God, then what does it look like for him to go into the marketplace to hire workers? And the answer is, I think he sends us into the marketplace. He sends his disciples. He sends his representatives who offer labor to the masses. The marketplace being the central, social, economic center of the city. He calls us to go there. In Seattle, we're in the marketplace. We're right in the heart of the city where people come to work and find work. And he wants us to invite people into the labor of the kingdom of God. But so often, here's the problem, we assume that people just know that God's hiring. Like surely they know that God's hiring and that they can show up and work his vineyard if they want to work whenever they please. But clearly these people didn't know that they could do that. No one has hired us. No one has asked us to come work this vineyard. So don't assume that people know this. Don't assume that they understand how the kingdom of God works. They won't know where to go or how to go there or what to do when they get there unless somebody asks them and tells them that someone is you. So what are the questions that we can ask to move somebody forward? Move them towards working in the Lord's vineyard. Yes, we can see that many are not working for God, but what's keeping them from accepting His offer? I think some people will say, well, I'm not really sure what it would look like to work for God. What do we do? We explain to them what that looks like. Some will say, well, I'm not really sure I'd like my coworkers if I worked for God. I think that's a big one. And they're probably right that not everybody that works for God is that pleasant. But also, it's important probably to remind them that there's probably folks that they think work for God that actually don't work for God. You know, there's plenty of people that wear Carhartt that have never done an hour of manual labor in their life, but they still wear Carhartt. In fact, I have a Carhartt jacket, and these hands are very pretty. Okay. <laughs> so just because somebody, or you think somebody's a Christian, you tell this to people, they might not actually work there, so don't worry. Or they might say, well, I don't know what to do once I'm hired. So if I go and I accept employment, what am I going to do? How am I going to know how to do the work of God in the vineyard? Well, here's the deal. You say, don't worry. We've got, a, we've got some great new hire training. In fact, one of the ways that I've explained Alpha, and we're kind of into Alpha now and we're going, it's, it's kind of 10 weeks of basic Christianity. This is what, this is what Christianity is. That's like new hire training. So we're trying to do things as a church to help people who are interested in working for God get up to speed. New hire training. We've got great new hire training. We've got on-the-job training. Just come, work with us. You'll learn as you go. There's great job shadowing experiences here at God's Vineyard. You'll figure it out. Don't be worried that you don't already know. We'll teach you. And then you should ask them, so what are you waiting for? That's like the primary question that so many people never get asked. Like, what's keeping you from accepting this job offer? You want to do something meaningful and purposeful with your life. What is keeping you? It's a great question to ask people. Most people haven't ever thought why. Maybe because they didn't know that they could work for God. And maybe because they thought there was something stipulated in that employment contract that wasn't actually there. So what's keeping you from working for God? Let's look at verse 8. So they say, well, no one's hired us yet. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now what's interesting is this idea of wages, right? We understand that. You get what you work for. But what's so important as we understand what's coming next is that Scripture again and again reminds us that our true wages, remember this is not just about employment, it's about the kingdom of God. That our true wages are death. Romans six nineteen through 23 for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ultimately, that's what this parable is about. That the wages that every single person in this story deserves when it comes to their relation with God is death. But what each and every person gets is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So don't lose sight of that. And Jesus would have talked about this idea of the wages, the true wages that everyone deserves but that none get who find themselves in Jesus Christ. So then he goes ahead and he's going to pay them. And he says, says pay them from the last up to the first. Now this could be a reversal of order like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that the last group is getting paid first when they just got there. Or it could just be a, a, a necessary literary structure for the parable because the first group needs to see what he pays the last group. It's important that the first group sees what the last group gets paid by the landowner. And let's see what happens. And when those hired, verse 9, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Wow. Wow. Just for one hour. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they saw this and they thought they would receive more. Right? Because they're thinking, wow, this is a generous landowner. He gave them a day's wage for only an hour of work. Imagine what he's going to give us. We worked the whole day, all 12 hours. Imagine what we'll get paid. But each one of them also received a denarius. What? Verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master. Now imagine that. You're a day laborer. You're at the very lowest socioeconomic class and you're grumbling at the landowner, the master, who would have been at the top. So this is no small thing that they're grumbling at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Here's what they're saying. Not only did we work 12 times longer than them, but we worked in the middle of the day when it was the hottest, and they came in the evening when it was cool. All of this, and yet they get the same as us? Verse 13. But he replied to them Friend. See what he did here? Friend. (laughs) They grumble at their master, and he calls them a friend. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. He's saying, I haven't cheated you out of anything. I fulfilled what I promised you that I would fulfill. Nothing is unfair with what I've done with you. He says, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He says, or do you begrudge my generosity? The word begrudge here is actually more literally translated evil eye. He's saying, do you give me the evil eye? So they're scowling at him, giving him the evil eye. And the word for generosity is literally goodness. Do you give my goodness the evil eye? I do what I want with what is mine. You do what you want with what is yours. And I choose to give the last the same as the first. And so Jesus gives a summary of the whole parable saying, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And I don't think what he's saying here is, just make sure you're not the first because you're out. You're going to be last. What he's saying is, no. Everyone is treated the same. Apples and oranges, oranges and apples, they're all the same. In the kingdom of God, everyone is treated the same. The first will be last, the last will be first. There's no distinction in the kingdom of God. Even if you work much harder than someone else. So, this is the parable, and it's challenging. And I, and I, I don't know if you feel the angst of it, but I, I feel the angst of this truth. Like, is this really how the kingdom of God works? And I've felt it time and time again in my life. Lots of times, I don't talk about the feelings that I'm having because I know that I'm not supposed to feel this way, but it's hard to work so much harder and then other people slide in at the end of the day and God gives them the exact same salvation that He's given to me. So I want to talk about three kind of main key points that we need to draw out of this parable. And they all center around this first point, which is this, that salvation belongs to who? Not to us. It belongs to the Lord. He says, verse 14, I choose to do what I want. It's my generosity. It's what belongs to me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And He gives it to us, and it becomes ours, but it's not ours to start with. It's His, and He can do whatever He wants. This is really where the disease of entitlement can kind of quickly creep in in a spiritual sense. We can't let it do that. It's so easy to forget that God was the one who found us. Even if it was at the beginning of the day, He found us, and we... We're in need, and He gave us what we were looking for. And we forget that, right? I mean, it gets to the end of the day, and we forget where we once were. And we feel like we're entitled to something. We're entitled to get something that is ours because of the work that we've done in comparison to others. But it never was ours to take or ours to own. It was always God's. He's the one who gave it. So your employment opportunity in God's vineyard is God's generosity to you. He, did not have to, he didn't have to pick anybody up. He didn't have to go to the marketplace at all. He could do whatever he wanted. And he chose to give you work. And he chose to pay you for that work. To give you a reward. That is your salvation. So this might draw up in you this idea of you know, last minute conversions. Conversions. Sometimes they're called deathbed conversions, where people their whole life have not followed God or done what He says is good or right, and at the last minute, they say, I accept Jesus Christ. And the question is, is that possible? Does that happen? Is that real? And the answer is yes. Now, sure, there's times probably when it's not authentic or sincere, but we know that it happens, and the prime example in Scripture is the thief on the cross. So Jesus is being crucified. And there's a man to his left and a man to his right, both robbers and thieves. Luke 23 says this, One of the criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He understands his predicament that he's in complete need. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, says the criminal. But this man has done nothing wrong, pointing to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And they both die that day. thief has no time to work in the vineyard. He's hired at the very last minute, just minutes, maybe hours before Jesus dies. And Jesus says, you'll see me in paradise. So we know that it can happen. We know that you don't work for your salvation, that it's a gift from God. So, if you've ever been upset when you've heard of someone coming to Christ at the last minute, or at the last stages of their life, in the 11th hour, you need to remember the thief on the cross, and you need to remember that you too are a thief. You say, I'm not that bad, I'm not a thief. I didn't do anything in my life that deserved crucifixion. But you are. A.W. Pink explains it this way. He says, suppose that a firm in the East appointed an agent to represent them in the West and that every month they forwarded to him his salary. But suppose also that at the end of the year his his employers discovered that through the agent, the agent had been cashing the checks they sent him, but nevertheless he had served another firm all the time. Would not that agent be a thief? Yet this is precisely the situation in the state of every sinner. He has been sent into the world by God, and God has endowed him with talents and the capacity to use them and to improve them. God has blessed them with health and strength. He supplied his every need and provided innumerable opportunities to serve and glorify God. But with what result? The very things that God has given him have been misappropriated. The sinner has served another master, even Satan He dissipates his strength and wastes his time in the pleasures of sin. He has robbed God. That's why Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death. And every time we use our talents and treasures for ourselves rather than for God's vineyard, we rob from God. We all deserve death, but some get life everlasting through Jesus Christ. So we have to remember that. When we grumble at the sight of people late in their life or maybe it's people that have been sort of notorious sinners and lived a life seeking pleasure and wealth and fame for themselves and then they turn to Christ, we must remember that we were that too. Don't grumble at God for that. Don't give him the evil eye. But remember how he dealt with you. I was thinking of this in the context of Christmas morning and I don't know if this was like this in your house, but in my house, There was the excitement of Christmas morning, but then it got real contentious. I mean, it was like, what did mom and dad, Santa Claus, what did he get my sisters? And so I'm like excited about what I got, but then I'm always looking, what did he get them? And sometimes I thought what he got them was better than what he got me, and I'm doing the math in my head. How much did they spend on my sisters? And I'm feeling like it's contentious, man. And there's a lot of angst in the room. I mean, this next one better be big because that one was big for her. And you know, you could open the gifts in any way you wanted, so you weren't sure, like, is there some sort of a scale system here? Like, did I open the wrong gift first? Or so it was like there's a lot of tension in our living room. So imagine like a Christmas morning with Jesus, right? And we're grumbling against Jesus because he just gave this sweet gift to my sister. And you know for a fact that she hasn't been that good this year. I know some of the things that she did. And I know that she had not been that good, but she's getting these great gifts. What do you think Jesus would say to us if he saw us giving our sister and him the evil eye? What do you think he'd say? Well, he's a diplomat, so he'd probably pull, us, pull me aside Say, Davey boy, here's the deal. Remember what I got you? Remember what I did for you? Remember that gift that I got you last year? Remember how I found you broken and beaten down by your guilt and your shame because of your sin? You remember that? Then what did I do for you? Yeah, I took that from you. I took it all. I took all the wrath, all the revenge of God deserved for you. I took it on myself. You remember when I did that for you? Do you remember that? It was placed on me on the cross. Don't you remember? What did you have to give up for that? Nothing. You want me to give that back to you? Want me to take that gift away from you? you tell me that was a bad deal for you? No, 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 I'd say. I don't want to give it back. Don't, don't give it back to me. I don't want that back. It was a good deal. Of course, it was a great deal. Okay, Jesus says. Then why are your panties all knotted up? Get back in there. Be happy for your sister that she got a great gift from me. Get back in there. No buts. No buts. Just get back in there, champ. Be authentically happy for your sister. You see how ridiculous it is that we get upset that God's giving great gifts to other people and we're giving Him the evil eye? It doesn't matter if the gift you got The gift of salvation, you got it at 10 years old, or 20 years old, or 30 years old, or 80 years old. No matter when you got it, it's the greatest gift ever. It doesn't go away just because he's giving it to others. And the reason it flares up in us, the reason that these feelings come, because they will come, is because we've got, like we talked about last week, this sinful nature that's triggered in us when we see grace go out. When we see God's generosity, there's something that bubbles up. It doesn't go away, when we become followers of Jesus, it's still lying dormant. And when we see it happening, all that laziness, all that self-centeredness can surface because we start comparing gifts. When that happens, remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. This parable is ultimately about God's generosity, but yet we can't even help when we read it to think about the stinginess of God towards the group. Four groups got something that they did not earn, and only one group got exactly what was promised to them at the beginning of the day. You see that? But yet it's so hard to even think about these other groups, we only see the unfairness of the one, even when we read it now. This is ultimately about God's generosity that He gives so much more than we've earned. One dollar for 12 hours, one dollar. For nine hours, one dollar for six hours, and one dollar for an hour. Oh, the generosity of God, the equality of God, the kingdom of God is a place I'd want to be. Um I could just go on and on. I mean, I'll just share this one thing real quickly. Like God gave me a lot of skills that helped me on a basketball court. I had I think I had above average dexterity, hand-eye coordination. I'm relatively tall compared to the rest of the world but you know what? The only thing I could ever focus on was how I couldn't jump. And I'm pissed at God still about this all the time. Why can't I jump? If I could have jumped, I wouldn't be here, man. You'd see me playing tonight. Game four, me and Steph. Curry, that is. Okay. But I couldn't jump. And that's the one thing I always focus on. Not on all the other things he's given to me. I see this with people with curly hair. They always want to be Straight-haired people. And people with straight hair always want to be curly-haired people. It's amazing. We'll spend tons of money. We can't just appreciate. I mean, I don't know if you can tell, it's difficult for me to tan. But lots of times, people that have a nice natural tan are always trying to stay out of the sun so they don't get too tan. I'm like, I would take some of that tan from you and place it on me because it's either pasty white or bright red. There's no in-between for me. I mean, sometimes I'll get like a 24-hour tan that then peels off but it's not lasting. If you have a nice tan, just thank the Lord. (laughs) So we've got this bent and we convince ourselves that God's sort of keeping something or selling us short instead of focusing on everything that he's given to us. Stop, take a breath, zoom out, and see the full picture and remember, wow, I had no job this morning and he's hired me and he's paid me everything that was due. So thankfulness That is the proper response to the salvation of the Lord. Thankfulness. So others might see this and realize, oh wow, this is how the kingdom of God works? I can wait till the 11th hour and then he'll hire me and pay me everything he paid the guy that started at 6 a.m.? I'm going to work this system. I'm going to work this system. Tomorrow, I'm going to wait it out at the marketplace until the 11th hour And then I'll get hired on by this landlord and he'll pay me the full day's wage. So why don't we do that? Why don't we wait till the last days of our life, live for ourselves, enjoy the pleasures of the world, and then at the very end become a follower of Christ? We're in. Life's good. Why don't we do that? Seems like a pretty slick plan. Well, I'm going to tell you why that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea to be divine procrastinators, to wait till the 11th hour. You ever wonder where that term came from? The 11th hour. Why that's a terrible idea. The first, or the overarching principle of of why that's a terrible idea is that God's timing is not our timing. And we have no idea what his timing is. And so our response should be to say yes to God's job offer whenever it comes to start our work right away and to work until God tells us The work day is over and it's time to rest. And here's why that should be our response. Because we have no idea if we'll even make it to the 11th hour. If the hours of the day are our life, we might think that we'll make it to 80 or 90. We have no idea. God never promised us that. What makes you so sure that the 11th hour will come for you? I learned that the hard way when my perfectly healthy Thriving sister died at 26. I said, What am I doing waiting till the later portions of my life to start working for God? He never promised me my 30s or my 40s or my 50s. The second reason is that we don't know when the Lord is going to end the workday. He may come back, He may say, My time of waiting is over, no more resumes. It's time to move on to the next stage of my plan, which is the stage of judgment. We don't know that God won't return before the 11th hour. And so if we wait and we wait and we wait, just sort of playing the game, thinking that eventually God uh, will come back to the marketplace in that final time, then we'll accept it. We've totally missed the point. And in fact, what we've probably done is we've just gotten really good at hardening our hearts to the gospel every time that we hear it hardening our hearts to the offer of God for employment. I've actually told people before, Like, if you don't plan to actually consider whether or not this is true, to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is proclaimed, then I would encourage you not to put yourself in those situations because you're just going to build up the ability to not listen, the ability to say no, and you actually are callousing your heart to the offer of God to the point where you might not even realize that you're doing it. So we don't want to learn to be good at saying no. We don't want to play that game. And finally, and this is probably the most important reason, we don't want to wait till the 11th hour, is that we've totally missed the point of work. Like, why do we associate work of all kinds as such a bad thing? Where did this idea come from? How did this idea get into our psyche that to work is bad and to, to, to not work and to be lazy is good. I'm telling you, it's in my head, and, it, and it's always pressing in on me. Like, I'm always, if I can just work faster and faster and get it done, then I'll have all this free time. I don't know where that idea came from. Like, why, do we, why are we so excited to work, 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 so that we can retire and just sit around? Where did these ideas come from? If you've ever been unemployed, and I've been unemployed, I thought, man, this will be great. I'll collect my check from the government. I won't have to do anything. And I can tell you, I've never been more miserable in my life than when I did not have work. But yet, for some reason, we think that working is not the blessed state sitting around, that that's where we want to be. Is working all day really better than standing in the marketplace all day, waiting to work? Is having tons of free time really preferable to doing the work of the Lord? Like I said, I wrestle with this all the time. But I got to do a gut check and say, why do I have these feelings about work, especially work for God, being so bad? Doing the work of the Lord doesn't suck. It's great. It's not always easy. Sometimes you'll suffer. Sometimes it'll be incredibly fun, but it's always meaningful, it's always purposeful. It does not suck. The hours might be long, but it doesn't suck. We're literally getting asked by God to do incredible tasks for His kingdom, for His vineyard. We're getting a front row seat to watch Him reconstruct the world as it was intended to be. There's no way that that is worse than standing, waiting in the marketplace. Yes, it's true that by working hard for the Lord or working long hours for God does not get you a bigger mansion in heaven. That's a lie. I don't believe that's true but it's not to say that you don't get anything out of your work. In fact, I think you get something of great value. You get great stories, you get great memories, and I think we'll share those in eternity in the new world that Jesus talks about in chapter 19. We'll get to sit around and talk about that. So if I'm honest, there's times when I wish I didn't have the schedule that I have, that I didn't have to have that extra conversation with somebody even from this church. Sorry, guys. There's times when I wish that. There was times I wish I'm not driving across I-90 at midnight on Saturday to print bulletins or staying late after church to lock up. There's lots of times when I wish that. But for what? Usually it means an extra episode of Game of Thrones. It's just going on tonight. Uh, I mean, usually it's for like a basketball game. Steph Curry's playing right now. But when I'm sitting around in the kingdom of heaven Imagine this with me, put yourself, if you need to close your eyes, you're sitting around at the kingdom of heaven, it's probably a bonfire going or something like that, it's probably in Jared's backyard of his mansion that's no bigger than anybody else's mansion, I don't think we'll have mansions by the way, anyone else's, you know, apartment complex, we're going to be sitting around and Chris is going to be there and Ben will be there, I'm sure Kurt and DJ will be there, Mark's going to be there, Tyler, Tate's going to be there, it's going to be great. Travis and Cody, Youngbin's going to be playing the piano, Jordan's going to be strumming his guitar, just little licks like this. It's just going to be amazing. Isaac Wiggers is going to be filling up our wine glasses with some of the best wine we've ever had. I'll probably be talking too much, as I always do. But what am I going to be talking about? Now, I realize that there's a bunch of dudes in the room right now that are just like, I'm in? (laughs) This is awesome. I never knew if I was actually in or not. You're in, guys. I just told you. It's in a sermon. Can't take that back. But maybe some of the women in the room are like, well, are there no women in heaven? What's going on? (laughs) Like, No, I just spared you from this experience (laughs) because trust me, you don't want to be listening to us talk. It's not going to be that great. You guys are going to be having your own party. It's going to be way better than ours. So I left you out of this story to spare you. But what are we going to be talking about? What are we going to be saying around this fire? I'll tell you this. At this particular party, I cannot imagine going around talking about the 18 points that Steph Curry scored in the fourth quarter of game four of the first round of the playoffs in 2016. Could you believe that? I'm not gonna be talking about that. I'm not gonna be talking about that at all. Because I'm gonna be talking about, remember when we went down to the Union Gospel Mission and and we met that guy, Freddie, and we told him that God loved him and we started a relationship with him? Do you remember that? And now Freddie is at the party with us. I'm not going to be sitting there saying, man, do you remember season five premiere of the Game of Thrones? That was crazy. I want to go watch that again because that was something else. No. I'm going to be talking about that night at church that even though Dave went really long and I missed the premiere and I had to watch it you know, the next day on HBO Go, even though I missed it, do you remember that Wendy came to church for the first time? And she got plugged into a fellowship group and she'd never experienced real community. She'd never been known. She'd she'd gone to church for a while but just sat in the back. Do you remember that and how that totally changed the trajectory of her life? And now she's sitting, not at our party because it's lame, but with the other women (laughs) down the street. That's what we're going to be talking about. Working for the Lord doesn't suck. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the best things that we do here on earth. You say, Dave, I don't know if that's true. Trust me, it's true. And when you start experiencing it, even now you'll realize that's amazing work. Don't wait till the 11th hour to start working for God. Don't try to beat the system. You miss out on so much God. You miss out on the joy of a relationship with God. Salvation is not just a ticket to heaven It's an invitation into relationship with the creator and maker of the world. Don't lose out on the joy of working for God. Just say yes when he wants to hire you. The third movement that I see happening in this story is the movement of those still at the marketplace that have yet to be hired. And like I said, we don't know why the landowner keeps coming back and keeps hiring more people Is he miscalculating how much work's to be done? Is he miscalculating how many workers? Or maybe each time he comes, he hires everybody that's at the market, and then more people come after he's come. We don't know. Maybe somebody was sleeping in. Maybe somebody was focusing on their own projects. That's what some people think, that some people would work in the morning for their own sort of small plot of land, and then once they finished their work, they'd come to the marketplace and try to make some extra money. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe people are at the marketplace, but they, when the landowner comes, they want nothing to do with him. We don't know exactly. We can see all of these things happening, but Jesus doesn't really care to answer the question because he simply says that until the hour is late, the landowner keeps coming back and freely hiring all who want to work for him. And I was thinking about I was talking with uh, our nanny Lex, and. Lex gives me some of my best sermon illustrations, and she's going down to the desert, to Palm Desert, to the Stagecoach Music Festival. Um, Yeah, we should all be jealous of her. And she's going, she's staying in this big house with all these gals, all of her friends. And we were talking about, you know, how do you start big, meaningful conversation with a group like that, a mixed group? And this can be hard. But it reminded me of sort of a real example of how this might look, this idea of the marketplace might look in our real life. Because we don't have marketplaces where we go and we hire people. But we've got big, we've got houses with tables kind of in the center of the house. And what would it look like if, even if it was just one person, and you're at the table and you started a conversation... And the conversation moves into some meaningful things like what's the purpose of life and why are we here and why are we toiling and struggling and what is it all for? And Lex, being a Christian, gets to share about her working for the Lord and what it's like to be doing the work of the Lord and the purpose and the meaning that she gets from that. And here's the deal. Not everybody's going to be around the table. There might be one or two people at the table and there might be one person at the table that's locked in and really is understanding what's going on and wants to know more. What is it like? From your perspective, maybe maybe she ends up at the end of it wanting to come and do the work that Lex talks about. But maybe there's somebody else that's sitting at the table, the marketplace, and is listening but is really uninterested. Or maybe there's somebody at the table that's not even really listening. They're sitting there but they're not listening. But there's probably some other people in the house as well. Maybe somebody sees what's happening over there at the table, the marketplace, and Realizes that's a deep, important conversation about life and purposefully chooses to stay away until that conversation ends. Maybe they distract themselves and they turn on the TV. Maybe there's somebody else who's really into their career and they're in their bedroom sending emails, working to get that next promotion even while they're on vacation and they miss out on the table. They don't even know what's happening. The conversation Maybe there's somebody that's walking around in the front yard and they're on the phone with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and they're just consumed with this trivial argument and they're arguing and they're walking around. They've got no idea that this conversation is happening. Somebody else is probably sitting by the pool working on their tan. But it's not all about that one conversation. What if the next day or the next morning there's another conversation happening? Maybe more people show up that time. Or maybe it's not even the next day or the day after that. Maybe it's the next year they all get together and they do it again and the conversations happen again. And maybe it's not till 10 years down the road when finally one of those people who has been so distracted or purposely staying away finally says, I'd love to come to the table and talk about this stuff. Now, can you imagine that happening And 10 years of stagecoach festivals, and finally somebody says, Now I'm ready to talk about the meaning and purpose of the work of life, and you say, Sorry, you missed your chance. You should have come last year or the year before. We don't really want you at the table. I hope we don't do that. I hope instead we're filled with joy. And our eyes light up and we say, I'm so glad that you came to the marketplace. Do you want to come work with me for the kingdom of God? Let me tell you about it. And we don't have to worry. We don't have to judge them ourselves because we're worried that they won't understand what they've missed out on. Because when they experience the work of the Lord, when they experience this conversation and the understanding, they themselves will self realize that oh my gosh I wish I'd come to this table 10 years ago oh I wish that I'd been here all these other times you don't have to make them realize that they'll realize it themselves and all you have to say to them is don't worry we're glad that you're here we've got eternity to keep talking like this you see how different that is God wants us to accept His salvation as early as possible within His plan for our life, but regardless of why you might be in that second group or that third group or that fourth group or that fifth group, it doesn't change the fullness of the salvation that God gives you. And who are we to tell people what they've missed out on? Salvation is the Lord's. When I look out at our city, that the vast majority of the people here in Seattle have not yet accepted God's invitation to come work for Him. Most of them are no longer in the sunrise of their lives. Most people are either in that second group or that third group. Some are in the twilight of their lives. And as I thought about this, I realized something's a little bit broken in our sort of general Christian context. In that It seems like we spend a disproportionate amount of time focusing on those in the sunrise of their lives, the youth, children's programs. And there's nothing wrong with this. I'm a huge supporter of Young Life and I've been a volunteer leader um, more than one time. And I believe in the work of, of organizations and youth ministries and all these things. It's so important. But I feel like we've forgotten about everybody after that. Like what time, talent, and resources are we spending to reach our peers and our friends and other adults and adults in our families, even those that are older than us. I think God would say, yes, invest in the youth. The sooner we can get them understanding salvation of the Lord and working for the Lord, yes, the better. But never give up on adults. Don't give up on your friends. Don't give up on your family members. Don't convince yourself that they're too far gone. Don't do it. Keep going back to the marketplace. Keep inviting them to hear about working for the Lord. And you've got to be doing it. That's what's going to interest them and when they see you actually doing it. Now maybe somebody in this room is sitting here and they've not yet accepted God's offer of employment. And maybe you say, but for so long I've said no to God's invitation. How could I now say yes? You know what Jesus says to you? There's no time like the present. Maybe you say, but for so long I've pursued my own goals, my own agenda, my own career, my own wealth, my own fame. How could I now seek God's agenda? You know what Jesus says to you? There's no time like the present. Maybe you say, but for so long my identity has been wrapped up in my atheism or my agnosticism, my universalism, even my Buddhism, or something like that. How could I now identify as a Christian after all this time Jesus says, there's no time like the present. Maybe you say, but for so long, I've put off growing in my relationship with God, my knowledge of God, my workmanship in God. I'm so far behind my friends, my siblings. How could I ever get up to speed? Jesus says, there's no time like the present. There's millions of excuses why not to start working for God. And there's one reason to start his name is Jesus his life his death in our place his resurrection compels us to stop saying no and to start saying yes to the invitation to do God's work so maybe you're still in the marketplace tonight you've never chosen to say yes to God's offer do you know you can just choose tonight to say yes tonight can be the beginning of a whole new career. Serving the Lord. Working His vineyard. All you have to do is say yes. And if you want to say yes, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Got those prayer cards in your bulletin. Write on that. I, I want to be employed by God. I don't want to put it off. I want to be employed by God, and I want to know how to do that. Write that on your prayer card. Put your name on it. Probably put your email address. And somebody from our church will contact you, get coffee with you, explain to you what are the next steps for employment with God. It's that simple. Because Jesus is coming again and again, offering. You want to work now? What about now? I don't know if you knew this, but Andrew Jackson's on his way out. He's no longer going to be on the $20 bill. I know, we're all sad. He's being replaced by Harriet Tubman, Just an amazing woman. She's now going to be on the $20 bill. And here's a woman who risked her whole life. She risked everything, again and again, organizing and operating this underground railroad to save her fellow human beings from slavery. She's risking, she's sacrificing. She endured much sweat as she leveraged her freedom for the freedom of others. Can you imagine what a different world it would be like if Harriet Tubman decided that once she found her salvation, she said, I'm good. Thank you, God. I'm good. And reflecting on her own first moment of crossing the border into the free state, Tubman said this, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. Now that I was free, There was so much glory over everything. The sun came up like gold through the trees and over the fields. I felt like I was in heaven. But to this solemn resolution I came. I was free, and they should be free also. I would make a home for them in the north, and the Lord helping me, I would bring them all there. Be thankful for your salvation that you received the freedom that you've received in Christ, the employment that you've received through Christ. Especially if you're one in the first group. If God saved you early in your life, be ever grateful if you were a part of that first group. But like Harriet Tubman, it's not enough to just enjoy being a part of that first group. You must remember that it's not your salvation, but the Lord's. And you should take His offer into the marketplace. Enjoy it. And tell others to enjoy it because it belongs to Him. And many will come in different ways at different times, but have joy and celebrate anytime time it happens. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You save us. We thank You that You give us a second and a third chance to take up Your offer of employment in your kingdom, that you don't just come once and say, take it or leave it, but that you keep coming back time and time again. For those of us who have accepted your offer and are now working for your kingdom, help us to remember the great joy it is to work for you. Help us to remember the great deal that we got, even if we were young men and women when we first accepted it, that it's the best deal ever. And help us anytime someone comes and gets that same deal. Whether or not they work as hard or as long as us, that no matter when they accept the offer, that we would rejoice and celebrate and welcome them in and get to work for your name and your glory.